Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting sites and apps including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that is PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And with that, today we're excited to be joined by UVA Associate Director of Clinical Microbiology, Dr. Amy Mathers, for a conversation about COVID-19 testing and testing supplies, which are a critical component to community testing to provide a better understanding of the scope of the virus and how it spreads. And with that introduction, welcome to the program, Dr. Mathers. Thank you so much. I'm Abs- glad to be here. Absolutely. And we're, we're glad to have you. So let's talk about testing for COVID-19. We tend to talk about this in general terms, but people might be surprised to learn that there are actually hundreds of different tests that have been approved by the FDA for current or past coronavirus infection detection. There are PCR tests, antigen tests, and antibody tests. To start with, can you give listeners an overview of the three categories of testing and generally how they work? Yeah, so thank you. And I think this is an area that can be quite confusing, and there is a lot going on in the COVID testing space. And so just briefly to start, if somebody says you need to get a COVID test because you have symptoms for COVID, the most sensitive test out there and the one that people are probably the most familiar with is getting a PCR test. So testing for that signature, the the RNA signature of the virus, usually done through a nasopharyngeal, throat, or um, nasal swab. There has been a lot of expansion in this area about the PCR testing availability, but it was really the PCR tests that were first kind of the bottleneck around turnaround time and around some of the delays that were that were really notable. Coming more readily, and, and just to be clear, that detects active virus and active infection in a person at the time that they're tested. And there's a lot of nuance there, but to just stay with the testing theme, the other types of tests are antigen testing, and that is going to be more and more widely available. And several antigen tests are coming to locations all around the Commonwealth right now. And the antigen tests test for particles of the virus, of the live virus. And so the idea is is that although they're not as sensitive as the PCR test, and so it might miss people that are actually positive for COVID, the thinking is that tests or will detect the people that are most actively infected by detecting those proteinaceous bits of virus. And so that also will be widely available. And most of the ones that are coming currently are point-of-care tests. So you could get that test done right then and there in front of you. They've mostly been looked at in people that have symptoms, but I think that public health officials are really trying to think about how we could use this for large, massive screening because they're more readily available and cheaper. But that is going to be evolving over the next one to two months, I believe. The last test that's important to have awareness about is the antibody test. And this Unlike the the antigen test or the PCR test, the antibody test doesn't actually check for the virus. It checks for an imprint on your immune system as to whether or not your body has seen the virus or not. And so this checks for past infection in people that think, I think I had a COVID infection and three weeks later want to understand if they have immunity. One of the best uses of this test is for people who feel like they want to donate um, serum and aren't sure if they've had COVID or not, an antibody test might be an example of of that use. And that's usually off of blood, so not from the nose or the mouth. Well, thank you, Dr. Mathers, for that primer. It really is good to understand the differences between the types of tests 
uh, the turnaround times, you know, and some of the pros and cons that can come with uh, the, the various testing types in terms of, as we just mentioned, both turnaround time and in some tests, there have been instances of false negatives. So it's good to give that overview. With respect to nasal swab specimen collection, as well as saliva samples, those are often components of PCR testing, which sometimes can take several days to process depending on the lab and its workload. And during the early days of the pandemic last spring, there were issues with testing turnaround times and shortages in terms of access to the components needed to complete tests. Many Virginia hospitals at that time took action to respond to these testing challenges, including UVA, which developed an in-house testing program to process tests for local patients and patients in other hospitals around the Commonwealth. I wonder what you recall from that time and what the experience was like for you and your colleagues early on uh, with working towards both the development of in-house testing for UVA's patients and then expanding it to assist other hospitals. Yeah, thanks. So looking back, you know, six months ago when we were really in some of these crunches around, we needed more testing available. And again, just to be clear, talking about the the PCR tests mostly so that we could detect with high sensitivity who's infected with the virus right then and there, whether they were coming into a hospital, which was one of our highest concerns, or we're in a high-risk nursing home with symptoms where transmission's been so detrimental. And so we just didn't have enough testing supplies. I think getting our diagnostic industry in the United States to quickly pivot and start manufacturing mass numbers of a new test for a novel virus was something that just couldn't be done overnight. And so we knew, though, as one of the largest academic university labs in the Commonwealth, felt like it was going to be really important to do whatever we could to help support testing around the Commonwealth to control the spread of the virus and find patients who were positive and get them into isolation and get them treatment and the care they needed as soon as possible. And so we, like you mentioned, started trying to help other hospitals that didn't have quite the same capacity. And so we've had to look at strategies within our own for having diversification in a way that I've never had to do as a lab director. You know, having multiple different platforms because the shortages occur across any different type of test that you'd run. So there's multiple companies making multiple different types of testing. And we have to carry five right now just to make sure that we can meet all the demands. And if one of those companies can't give us supplies, we're still able to provide testing for people who need it. We continue to support other hospitals in the area that need testing. And we're also continuing to support the efforts of VDH with their testing needs. And so it's been really rewarding to be able to have a large enough capacity to help with all the demands on the testing. And the last thing I'll say about it is, is the problem is, is when you have too much demand for testing, you end up with these really long lines to get onto the testing platform and get the test run. And so you end up with turnaround times on lab tests that, like you said, go up 48 hours, sometimes five days. And in the worst of it, we were hearing about testing turnaround times of 10 and 11 days. Having a PCR test that turns around in 11 days is not helpful for the patient. It's not helpful for anybody. And so we've worked really hard to make sure that we don't overcommit and end up with those really long lines. And it's been the work of a lot of different people, including commercial labs, to try to make sure that that does not happen again. Well, thanks for everything you're doing to ex- expand testing capacity. And it's really interesting to hear that perspective about 
the process of building up capacity, of offering that additional support to other healthcare providers that need it, and about the importance of timely lab turnaround times for testing to benefit both the understanding of the clinician as well as the patient's peace of mind or awareness about what their medical condition may be. So that's really fascinating, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. One of the reasons that we wanted to have you as a guest is to discuss work that you've been involved with to help streamline COVID testing by actually creating an FDA-approved COVID-19 testing swab. This is work that you and colleagues undertook in response to the testing challenges that we've already discussed. You worked with engineers to design different swab models before identifying a working prototype that, as I understand it, is now being mass-produced. So if you could tell us about that process in practical terms about how those swabs are helping make a difference on the testing front. Yeah, so this has been, again, an unprecedented time, to say the least, right? So I'm an infectious disease doctor and a clinical microbiologist, and here I am in manufacturing. And the thing behind it was that I had been working with an engineer, Will Guilford, in the biomedical engineering, and we'd actually manufactured um, another device that had nothing to do with swabs. But when these shortages were coming... It was just, you're just trying to brainstorm about what can you do to meet some of these shortages. And one of the shortages early in the pandemic was swabs. So to collect a COVID specimen and get it um, with high accuracy, it's ideal to use what we call a flocked swab. So it's a plastic wand with a bunch of fibers attached to the end. And then that can go in the back of the uh, nasopharynx, pick up virus and gently bring it back and put it into um, a viral transport media or, or a fluid to get it over to the lab safely and, and effectively. And those swabs before the pandemic were only being manufactured at three places in the world. One of them was Italy. And as you remember, Italy got hit hard early, and so their factory shut down. One of them was Maine, and one of them was in China. And so there was only one U.S. manufacturer, and they were not the lion's share of the swab industry at the time that this all started occurring. And so the engineer and I met and started trying to brainstorm about how couldn't we make swabs? Couldn't we solve this? And uh, after trying some 3D printed swabs and realizing that, is not a great avenue just because it's hard to get consistent manufacturing. We both knew that injection molding was probably going to be the way to go. And so made and designed and worked with FDA to make sure that these devices were safe, effective, and we cleared them properly. And so we did a trial comparing our swab to the FDA cleared swabs. And um, we're now manufacturing. Um, we have somebody who does injection molding of the swab wands for the plastic stick. We have a group that does flocking. And then in Richmond, Virginia, there's a group, Custom Health Services, that then packages and sterilizes and distributes the swabs. And so at this point, we're making 75,000 swabs a week and overseeing that work. And those can be distributed. We're giving the majority to VDH or the um, Virginia Department of Emergency Management for distribution as people need them. Well, that's great ingenuity on the part of you and your colleagues. And as you point out, so many people, you mentioned, you know, your background on the clinical side, you never imagined, you know, that you'd be working in the manufacturing space. Right. And yet, you know, so many people have had to adjust on the fly in that regard. And I can tell you here yep. at the association, you know, we are partnering with a whole host of folks in the manufacturing space who whose plants are not currently situated to produce medical supplies, but are looking to get into that arena um, because there is this demand. And so there's a lot of conversation about retrofitting and about plant restructuring and redesign to respond to this situation. So it's really fascinating to see you know, how folks from so many different walks of life professionally um, have had to adjust uh, and be agile to, to respond to the public health challenge. And so with that, to 
technical conversation out of the way, I'd like to ask you a few other questions to give people a bit of a sense of who you are beyond the work that you do. The first is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, my goodness. Probably figure out what you love to do and then figure out how to get paid for it. That's a very pragmatic spin on uh, follow your dreams. <laughs> that's exactly right. So, I mean, I love what I do. I mean, it, it has been a very challenging time professionally to be an infectious disease physician. I do epidemiology and then do clin micro with all the testing. But I just feel so rewarded and so well positioned to really help and having such meaningful work. You know, it, it, it's exciting and rewarding. Well, we, as I said, we appreciate the work that you're doing out in the field because it is important, especially at this moment in time. The next question for you, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on Earth, what would your last meal be? Oh, my goodness. Um, these are hard questions. Um, <laughs> what would I have? Oh, I'd have something really good. I'm a, I'm a foodie. <laughs> I would have something like beef wellington or something really delicious and rich. Okay. Um, Anything that combines meat and flaky pastry is not bad. So. Yes, exactly. With a little sauce, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, two more before we wrap up. Uh, the next question is, what's the top item on your bucket list? Oh, I really want to go to India and travel in India, okay. Southeast Asia. Well, once COVID is behind us, we can all get back to having vacations. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? Oh, my goodness. Let's see. So album... I think I might take something by Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Um, book. You know, I might take some. I know this sounds crazy, but I would probably take some really nonfiction. I really like reading about the history of infectious disease, so I might take The, the Coming Plague by Laurie Garrett, as boring as that sounds. That's fine. And the last one? Movie is the third Movie. one. Movie. Yes. Oh, I don't know. Something that you could read a lot into. Oh, you know what? I would take the I would take the Lord of the Rings trilogy. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, find them. Okay. That works. And what's your, uh, since you mentioned Fleetwood Mac, and I've actually been on a little bit of a Fleetwood Mac kick recently, uh, what is your favorite Fleetwood Mac song? Oh, I, I really like Rihanna. Okay. Um. Silver Springs I've been listening to a lot, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate you sharing those picks. And with that, that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to thank our guest, Dr. Amy Mathers, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really had a great time today. Thank you.